This episode of Game Master's Journey is brought to you by my patrons, readers, and listeners. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, visit LexStarWalker.com slash support. Starwalker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 293 of Game Master's Journey. I'm your host, Lex Starwalker. On this show, we discuss the craft and the art of game mastering. I've been running RPGs for over 30 years now, and I produce this show in the hopes that you can benefit from my experience, my triumphs, and my mistakes. Welcome back to the show, everyone. So glad you joined me today for another episode of Game Master's Journey. So today I am going to be quite ambitious <laughs> and tackle what what might end up being too large of a topic for one episode. We'll see how we do. If I need to, I will I will split this up in, into two episodes. But today I wanted to talk some more about the storyteller system which is the game system behind the various games from White Wolf set in the world of darkness. So if you listened to episodes 291 and 292, then you heard my discussion with Craig about his mage campaign that he's running. And I've mentioned that here and there in, in the recent episodes in this season. And yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. The White Wolf games, specifically Vampire the Masquerade and Changeling the Dreaming, are two of my most favorite RPGs of all time. They're two of the games that I have run as a GM the most. And yet I have talked about them very little on this show. I've mentioned them a lot here and there, but uh, barring the discussion I had with, with Craig on the last two episodes, I've never really gone into the details of the system of those games or, or anything, which is actually pretty unusual. The games that I have run the most as a GM are uh, various iterations of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, the ones I have the most experience with are second edition, third edition slash 3.5, and then also Pathfinder, which is in my mind kind of just a different edition of D&D. I know that'll probably offend some people. And uh, fifth edition. Also back in the day ran a good amount of the West End Games version of Star Wars. I ran the, the new iterations of Star Wars by Fantasy Flight Games a little bit. But other than D&D, the games that I've run the most through the years are Vampire the Masquerade and Changeling the Dreaming. Those three I've definitely run more than any of the other games I've, I've run. Although I did run quite, I have run quite a bit of Numenera. I don't think, I might have run more Numenera than I've run Vampire, but I haven't run more Numenera than I ran Changeling, I think. I ran a lot of Changeling back in the day. So why is it, you know, if, if two of these games, Vampire and Changeling, and they use, um, which, you know, you'll see as I go into this more, but they use the same game system. They're, they're compatible games in that the mechanics of you know how your characters work and how the dice work and all that are are the same 
in all of these games. So if you know how to play, for instance, Vampire, and you go to play Changeling, the only thing you need to learn is the differences between Vampires and Changelings, and the rest of the game mechanics will, will be the same. So, so how is it when two of these games, Vampire and Changeling, are among the three games I've easily played and run the most, the, the other of the three being D&D, how is it that I've never really talked about them in detail on the show before? Well, it, it really comes down to an experience I had, which I think I've talked about this here and there. I, I know I've talked about it a bit on Lex Out Loud, my other podcast, and I imagine at some point in the almost 300 episodes now of this show, I've at least mentioned this. So I'm, I don't want to spend a bunch of time talking about this today. But in a nutshell, what happened was I was developing a campaign for Vampire. At the time, I had a changeling game that I had been running uh, with some friends from high school. We were now graduated from high school. I was in college at, at the time. But, but I had this changeling game that I had going with friends from high school originally that we'd been playing for years. And I played this with people I knew in high school. So when I was running this campaign, I, I was in college. So I would run it, you know, in the summers and, and on holidays and weekends when I came home. Uh, from college, I, I'd run it for these guys. And that changing campaign went on for, I think, at least two or three years that we played that. Well, towards um, the end of that, I decided I was going to run a vampire campaign. And I had some really cool ideas for a vampire campaign. And long story short, I put a lot of time and energy into it. And I developed all these NPCs. And, and it was going to be you know, I was going to go for the more political game that, that Vampire excels at, which I'd never really done before, and I, and I was going to go for it. And I spent a lot of time developing this campaign, and I was really excited to run it. And for whatever reason, a, a couple of the players that I had in the, uh, that were going to play in the campaign, quit literally at the last minute. I mean, we'd, we'd made characters, we'd done preludes for both of them, and I literally showed up to run the first session, and they just were like they didn't want to play for whatever reason. I don't think they even gave me a reason. And that was, I don't remember now if it was all the players or the majority of play. It was only two people that did this, but I, I think they were the only two players I had at the time. I was going to get them going, I think, and then bring in more people. But uh, that happened. And it really pissed me off. And I actually ended up taking a lot of the materials that I'd come up with for that campaign and use that to uh, start a novel. So the first novel I wrote, Dawn of Endless Night, was based on stuff that I'd come up with for this vampire campaign that, that I never ran because the players quit at the last minute. But anyway, it, it really pissed me off and just kind of left this bad taste in my mouth for those games because of that experience. And indeed, for, for a while, it left a bad taste in my mouth for even um, running RPGs. Because, you know, one of the big differences between running an RPG as a game master and writing a novel is when you're writing a novel, it's it's kind of all you. You know, you're definitely not in that situation that you are as a game master where you could spend weeks planning a campaign and then your players just quit on you for no good reason. And now you're stuck with this campaign you can't run until you find other players. 
And, you know, maybe you made that campaign specifically for those players and the characters they had made. So it wouldn't really work super well just to use it with different players and different characters. So that's really frustrating. If you, like me, have been a GM for a long time, you've probably had something like this happen to you at least once uh, through the years. And and if so, you know uh, how frustrating that is. And with a novel, that's never going to happen. <laughs> the only person that can let you down that would lead to you not finishing a novel is you yourself. So it's, you know, completely within your control. And at this point in my life that this happened, uh, that was very appealing to me. And, and I saw this as a huge flaw with tabletop RPGs as a hobby is that, you know, you're really beholden to all these other people in your group to show up every time and to you know, take the game seriously, at least as seriously as you want them to, and to play their characters, and to respect the time that you put into it, and blah, 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 blah. You know, this is all dependent on other people. You know, for the most part, you can't play an RPG all by yourself and have much fun unless it's on a video game. As far as a tabletop RPG, I mean, I know there are solo games out there, but I can't imagine they're that much fun, really, compared to playing with other people. So it, it's kind of a part of the hobby, right? So because of that, I just, I stopped playing and running RPGs for for a number of years while I was working on my novel and, and doing other things. And, and I'm pretty sure I've talked about this at some point on the show. And then eventually I, I got back into it. And when I did, um, that was when 4th edition D&D was out. And, and so I started playing Pathfinder instead. And uh, then I got into Numenera when it came out and played that quite a bit. And then the fifth edition of D&D came out and, and I played that quite a bit. And I tried, you know, the new Star Wars game games. I tried the new Star Trek game. And yeah, I just never went back to a White Wolf game. You know, part of it was during those years that I wasn't playing. I sold all my books. I, I needed money and I had all these um, Star Wars books from the old Star Wars games, D&D books from various editions, uh, various White Wolf books for Changeling and Vampire and also Mage. And I sold all of them because I, I wasn't playing these games anymore. And at the time, I didn't think I ever would play them again. And so I sold them all. And so when those years went by and I came back into the hobby, you know, I pretty much was playing new games that I'd never played before or new editions. So I was buying all new books anyway. So like I said, I played Pathfinder, I played Numenera, I played 5th edition D&D, I played the, the Star Wars games, uh, Edge of the Empire, and Force and Destiny. And uh, yeah, so those were all new games that I hadn't played and I needed to buy books anyway. And, you know, if I would have played Vampire Changeling, I would have been buying books that I already had. Now, at this time, there was a new version of the games coming out, which I'll probably talk about in a little bit. And I did check out the new version of Vampire. It's called Vampire the Requiem. And the new version of Changeling, it was called Changeling the Lost. And, and I really did not like either of those games. So I, I didn't play them. And um, that, that just kind of further turned me off. And I'm like, well, I, I don't really like these new versions of the games at all. And they basically ended the old games and they're out of print now. And I would go, you know, I'd have to find all these books again on eBay or something because I sold them all and I just don't feel like doing that. So I just never got into them again. And now fast forward all these years and I was running a Numenera campaign and, and getting ready to start 
on, uh, well, at the time I, I thought I was going to start writing the next book, but in, in my series, but now I'm actually editing, uh, the first book again. But, uh, I, I knew I wasn't going to really have a lot of time to run a game. So, uh, I put the, the Numenera game on pause. And when I did that, we, we had been talking a little bit about mage, about the magic system. And so Craig volunteered to run some mage force in the interim. So that's what we did. And it just reminded me how much I loved these games, how much I love the system. And now there's, well, it's actually not the most recent version anymore, but they, but there's a 20th anniversary edition of these games out now that kind of compiles a lot of the stuff that was in the whole game line before into one book. So, you know, if I did, for instance, want to get into running Vampire again or Changeling, you know, at worst, I would probably only have to buy that one book and I'd be, I'd be set. I don't have to go track down all these out of print books anymore. So that's how I got to where I'm at, where I've, I've done almost 300 episodes of this podcast and I've never really talked about these games I love so much in any kind of detail because I, I usually talk about whatever I'm running or, or playing at the time. So I thought we'd rectify that. Uh, for want of anything else to talk about right now, I, I am working on a couple novels at, at this time. And so I don't have a lot of time for gaming. I'm, I'm playing in, in Craig's mage game and that's it. And I, I have been thinking about running some vampire. I do have uh, that vampire campaign I mentioned that I'd come up, up with all this stuff for and then kind of wrote a novel based on it uh, that I never did run. And between coming up with it to begin with and then writing a novel based on it, it's pretty much burned into my brain to where, you know, I could kind of run it at any time, almost at the drop of a hat. So uh, if or when Craig needs a break from Mage or he is done with the campaign or, or whatever, I may run that just because I feel like I could do that pretty easily without having to do a lot of prep. The, these games in general don't require a lot of prep, not like something like D&D would, at least not that kind of prep. It's more just dramatic stuff. You don't have to prep like mechanic stuff, which is really nice. So it's something I feel like I could do while I'm trying to write a book, unlike running a game like Numenera where I'm not as familiar with the system or running a game like D&D where you basically either have to create your own adventure which I don't have time or, or bandwidth for, or you have to use one of theirs and then basically rewrite it, which again goes back to the, I don't have time or bandwidth for that. And also D&D does require quite a bit more prep to run. And yeah, it just doesn't work that well as a kind of run it on the fly kind of game like, uh, like the White Wolf games do. So yeah, that's all the background for, for why I wanted to talk about these games. So I think what I'm going to do is I'll probably do a few episodes in this series. Today, I'm going to start and, and just kind of introduce you to the games overall. Because like I said, they all shared a core system that's the same for all the games. And then what I may do is do additional episodes about some of the specific games I have experience with. I have a lot of experience with Vampire and with Changeling. And now, thanks to Craig, a, a bit with Mage. So may have Craig on again, at least for that episode, if not for some of the others, to talk about Mage some more and get into the more of the nitty gritty of it. You know, the, the conversation I had with him the last couple episodes was more kind of high level stuff and, and speaking about the game just in general. 
Um, we didn't get a whole lot into the specifics. And, and I imagine that some of you, after hearing those episodes, are more curious about how does this magic system actually work? How does paradox work? All that kind of stuff. So, so we could go into to some of that and, and give a, a more of an explanation of the game and, and how it works. So that's the plan. That's the thought. And so today, we'll see how far we get. I, I might have to cut this off if it gets too long. But, but I'm going to start out talking a bit about kind of the history of these games because it's a little confusing, at least it was for me. So I thought I'd go over that a little bit and, and just the, the various versions and editions of, of the games that are out there that might be kind of com- confusing to the uninitiated. And then uh, if we have time in this episode or, or if not in the next episode, I'll just go over the general system and kind of the the gist of of how it works. I'm not going to go into all the nitty-gritty details, although there aren't really a lot of nitty-gritty details in the system to go into. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to try this with a game like D&D or Pathfinder or something like that, like try to explain the game to you uh, on a podcast. I don't think uh, that would go over too well. I think it'd just be too hard to do that and too hard to follow. But I think with this game, it'll be pretty easy to do. Which again is one of the selling points of the system is that it is so easy to learn, so easy to run, so easy to play. And yeah, it, it's just a really easy game to run that you hardly ever have to look anything up, at least as far as mechanics go. All right. So I grabbed some history of the game from Wikipedia. So thank you to everyone who contributes to Wikipedia uh, for doing my research for me. I'm not going to bore you with a long history lesson. But uh, there is quite a bit going on here as far as the different games and the different versions of the games. And I myself was confused about this and was reading this just to figure out what the hell's going on these days. So I thought I'd share this with you because it it is a bit bit much. So the first of these games that was actually made was Vampire. Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, It was created by Mark Reinhagen. And it was released in 1991, the the first version or first edition of that game by White Wolf. And it was the first of the storytelling or storyteller system games that are set in the world of darkness. So the world of darkness is described in the old versions of Vampire as a, quote, gothic punk version of the modern world where players assume the role of vampires who in this game are referred to as kindred. And the game deals with their night-to-night struggles against their own bestial natures, vampire hunters, and each other. So really, as far as the setting, the main takeaway here is it is our current modern-day Earth. And the main difference in the setting from, from the real Earth is just that these various supernatural beings exist. Vampires, werewolves, mages race which are basically ghosts and changelings which are which are fairies basically so it's our world today the only main difference is that these supernatural creatures exist and you know the vampires specifically are very manipulative and conniving and quite powerful and of course they've been around for a long long time so in the world of darkness they are seen as being secretly behind a lot of the things that have happened in the world through history. So, you know, you're, you're a conspiracy theorist out there believe in, you know, the Illuminati and, and crap like that. 
well, in this world, that kind of thing is real, but instead of the Illuminati or whatever, it's the vampires that are really behind all this, all these conspiracies and whatnot. The whole gothic punk thing, I don't know if that's a thing that's even still a thing <laughs> in the current iterations of the game. I don't really know. I don't really care. I kind of suspect it's not, or at least it shouldn't be. Because that was very much a just a product of the times of of when these games were released in the nineties. It was just, you know, teenage gothic angst, nineties grunge, all, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, obviously that was what, 30 some years ago now. So, you know, if you're gonna run one of these games now, unless you're gonna run it in the past, um, that's probably not gonna be the aesthetic that you want. But honestly, even back in the 90s, that was the least interesting thing about the world. And yeah, I I guess that's something I should bring up right now, or at least at some point, but I'll bring it up now since I thought of it, is one of the things about this, these games was there was this meta plot. So, you know, the games took place in this kind of fantasized version of our reality and the various games and the various books and the various game lines uh, were constantly promoting or presenting this this meta plot of kind of like what was happening in the wi- wider world. And with each, with each new book that came out, they would kind of advance kind of what the movers and shakers of the world were doing. So from the perspective of vampire, um, you know, there were these really old, powerful vampires, these elders that were kind of running the show. And as more and more books came out in in the game line, they would kind of... Um, advance this story of what what these powerful vampires were doing. So this was kind of seen equally as a benefit and a drawback to the games. You know, some people running the games loved this meta plot and they loved following it. And, you know, these these were often the kind of people that were going to buy all the books anyway, so they didn't mind. Um, and, and they liked what was being done with it. Other people didn't so much like the meta plot. They didn't want to have to constantly buy the new books to find out what the latest developments were, or they didn't like um, some of the things that were done with it. There's a lot of debate back in the day going, you know, between these two different groups, people who loved the meta plot, people who hated it. I never really got that involved with it. I didn't really, I thought it was kind of silly that people got kind of upset about it one way or the other. And it might be because of the game I was playing, because at that time I was mostly playing Vampire, and it could be that the different uh, games presented that meta plot differently. I'm I'm sure they probably did, but at least in the case of Vampire, in the the main Vampire book, the core book, and also in the Player's Guide, were which were the the two main books I used like all the time. Um, although I had all of them, but everything was always presented like this is what people believe, and, and there was always this sense of. It may not be true. And sometimes you were even given a few different variations on what different people thought about whatever was going on that contradicted one each, one another. And it was up to the storyteller or the GM to decide which, if any of those were actually true or if something else was true. And so with the actual meta plot and the events that happened with that, that did kind of say, well, these are the things that are actually true. But I never thought it was that big of a deal to go against that. And, and I often did because a lot of the meta plot stuff that they did, especially or specifically with Vampire, I really didn't care for. I didn't, I didn't like. By then I kind of had my own ideas of 
what the different clans were like and, and how things were going on. And I didn't always like what they did. So I would just throw out what I didn't want to use. But but that was an, an aspect of the game that existed and, and still does, I think. So back in 1991, when the, the first uh, edition of Vampire came out, it was notably new compared with other RPGs that were on the market at the time in quite a few different ways. It was conceived as a dark, moody, urban fantasy game with a unique gothic feel that harkened back to Ravenloft from D&D. And it would also be the first of a series of linked games sharing the same game world and, and the same system. Its content was also more novel than, than what else was available at the time as the game focused on plots, intrigue, and story, as opposed to more straightforward dungeon scenarios or just combat. While the RPG industry in general had been trending towards a more narrative approach at this time, Vampire was one of the first games of its kind to center on these things. Horror games had traditionally been a tough sell in the RPG industry, but Vampire included elements that made it more of a dark superhero game rather than purely a horror game. An extensive list of broad supernatural powers called disciplines, which included superior strength, speed, and toughness, as well as other powers such as mystic senses, mind control, and blood magic, gave the player characters a more superhuman rather than horror feel. The 13 clans added late in the development process provided a much-needed character class-like system based on vampire archetypes. Now, I would argue that the clans are much more similar to races in games like D&D than class, but you get the idea. This system proved very popular with players. For the game's mechanical elements, they turned to uh, the version of Shadowrun at the time, back from 1989. Um, so Vampire System of Comparative Dice Pools uh, drew on the mechanics innovated by Shadowrun, changing the, the dice used from a D6 in Shadowrun to a D10 in Vampire. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk more about the system later, so, so I'm, I won't go into that. So that was the original version. And then the second edition of Vampire came out in 1992. And then a revised edition in 1998. So the game or the version I played and ran was the second edition from 1992. You know, I'm pretty sure I was playing in 98, but I don't think I ever saw the revised one. The Vampire the Masquerade game line was discontinued in 2004, at which point it was superseded by Vampire the Requiem. Requiem. So what happened when they, you know, they say they discontinued Vampire the Masquerade was I'd been talking about this meta plot. Well, as part of this meta plot, each of the supernatural beings had beliefs about the, the quote, you know, end of the world, Ragnarok or Armageddon or whatever you want to call it. So for instance, for the vampires, this end of the world scenario was called Gehenna, when these very ancient and powerful vampires who've been sleeping in their lairs somewhere hidden for millennia, kind of like dragons, would suddenly rise up and, and kill all the vampires. And that would be the end of the world from the perspective of vampires. So when they, quote, ended the game line, what they did was they actually put out books that described how Gehenna happened. They ended the world, literally. Um, they did the same with werewolf. Uh, for werewolves, it was called the apocalypse. And so they did this. And 
This happened when I was not really playing the games anymore. And I don't, my feeling or, or my sense from the bit that I've read about it is this didn't go over real well. It, it doesn't sound like a lot of people liked the way that they ended it or even liked that they did end it. I remember when I found out about this, which I think was years after the fact, um, I was actually quite shocked that they that they did end it. I had always thought that Gehenna in Vampire would be something that that they they just would never go there. That would always be left to the GM to decide how that went down. So I was really shocked that they even did that. It definitely felt like a jumping in a sharp shark kind of thing to me that they even did that. Um, but yeah, it doesn't sound like it went over real well among players. And then, so then they relaunched all the games like they did Vampire the Requiem and Changing the Lost. And I don't even, even though I read both those books, I don't completely understand what the deal was with that. I'm not sure if it was like the world ended, but yet the world was still there and these games were about what came after or if they were just a relaunching of a setting and and just ignored the world of darkness that it ever was a thing. I'm I'm not sure which of those, if either of those is true, but uh, they very much changed, like the the vampire game very much changed vampires and how they worked, and the changeling game very even more so changed changelings and, and even the concept of what they were. And uh, I did not like either of those games at all. And I was quite uh, disappointed with them. So, uh, yeah, so that was kind of the relaunch in, uh, what was it, 2004 or whatever. So then in 2010, White Wolf switched exclusively to a print-on-demand model via uh, drive-thru RPG. And then in 2011, they announced the 20th anniversary edition. And I think they did these for all the games. But I know for sure they did it for Vampire Changeling and uh, Mage, and I have to assume they did it for Werewolf because that was another one of the more popular games. In fact, I'm pretty sure Werewolf was more popular than Changeling or Mage. I don't know if they did it for Wraith or not. I feel like Wraith was the least popular of, of the big games that they did, but I'm not sure about that. But yeah, 2011, they did the 20th uh, Anniversary Edition, which is what we're playing now in Mage. And that contains revisions of rules and is a compendium of most of the information provided in the supplemental material in the game's earlier editions. So that officially revived Vampire the Masquerade as well as the other games. And that, I believe, this is where it starts to get confusing, was published by Onyx Path Publishing, but now it's published by White Wolf again. Uh, and then in 2015, Paradox Interactive purchased White Wolf and all of its IP from CCP, who makes Eve. It's really weird that they owned it for a while. And then they put out a fifth edition of Vampire the Masquerade, also the other games. And I have looked at the fifth edition of these games, and I don't, I don't care for them. They made some changes to the systems and how they work, the, the mechanics, and, and I don't care for them. So if you're going to try out these games, I, I highly recommend you try out the 20th uh, anniversary edition, not the fifth edition, even though the fifth edition is more recent because I don't personally like the changes that they made. I, I think they should have stuck where, where they were at. Stuck with what worked. Don't fix it if it isn't broken. And then in 2018, some th things went down. I'm not going to go into it, but... Uh, White Wolf got themselves into trouble with some uh, not very politically correct things that they had in some of their books. 
and some controversies and whatnot. And so at that point, Paradox Interactive kind of took the game away from White Wolf's and, and said White Wolf would no longer be developing them. And instead now, Mophidius Entertainment would continue to de- the development of the games, uh, which Mophidius does uh, the new Star, Wars, Star Trek game, uh, Star Trek Adventures. So yeah, that's kind of where we're at. And then uh, in 2020, Paradox Interactive announced Renegade Game Studios would become the publishing partner for the World of Darkness, Vampire the Masquerade, and blah, 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 blah. So I don't know if they're that's instead of Mophidius or under Mophidius. I don't know. This is all kind of confusing. If you really care, you can dig into it uh, on Wikipedia and elsewhere. But yeah, I, I think that's enough. For, for us to kind of know where we're at, orient ourselves. So most recently, there's been the 20th anniversary editions, and then even more recent than that are the 5th editions of the games. But uh, I'm not going to talk about 5th edition because I, I don't like it. They just made a lot of mechanical changes that, that I, I don't like them nearly as well. There are people that do like them. And just to be completely transparent, I mainly looked at Vampire to determine if I wanted to mess with the 5th edition at all. And I did not like any of the changes they made to Vampire, so I anticipate I I won't like any of the changes that they made to the other games as well. And, you know, if I'm going to run more than one of these games, I want to run the same edition for all of them because they are compatible with one another. But, you know, for instance, if I'm running 20th anniversary edition of Vampire and then I'm running 5th edition Changeling, those would not be compatible with one another. So so if I'm doing V20 Vampire, I'm doing V20 for for all of them. So other than Vampire, the other games in the World of Darkness are Werewolf, where you play werewolves, Changeling, which are the Fae, Mage, and Wraith, which are ghosts. Those are the the game lines that that are full game lines. And then they also did Mummy, uh, where you play mummies. That one was pretty weird. And then Hunters, where you play normal humans that, that hunt vampires. And then they had alternative not so much alternative settings. I mean, it is setting, but they had alternative timelines for at least some of the games. Um, I know they had them for Vampire and for Mage. So for instance, for Vampire, they had a version of Vampire where you played in the Dark Ages. And then they had another one where you played in like the Victorian time period. But those were whole like separate game lines with their own core books and their own supplements and all that. So, so you could conceivably, you know, make a vampire and play it in Vampire of the Dark Ages and then play that same character in Vampire, whatever the Victorian one was. I, I don't remember what that one was called. And then play that same character in, in the modern day with Vampire the Masquerade, which would be really cool. I'm sure some people did that. I never did that. I, I did play around with uh, Vampire of the Dark Ages a bit, but uh, I actually didn't care for it. You know, I, it, it lost a lot not taking place in, in the modern age. I just found that playing playing vampires in the Dark Ages wasn't nearly as fun as, as playing vampires in, in the current day. But but your mileage may vary. So yeah, now, now I kind of wish I would have looked into a bit more what's going on with these current um, versions of vampire. And maybe I will real quick right now, uh, just so I can know what I'm talking about on here. All right. In the hopes of uh, clearing this up, I, I tried to figure this out. So it looks like the 20th anniversary edition is published by White Wolf. It's available on Drive Through RPG. 
Uh, it doesn't seem like you can get it anywhere else. And be warned, if you're going to look into these games, um, you can get PDFs on DriveThruRPG. But if you get the uh, the print versions, from what I've read in the comments and the reviews, uh, the print versions, the binding is terrible and falls apart. So yeah, you probably want to buy the PDF. I'm not sure because they have you know different versions of the print version you can get. And for instance, for Vampire... Uh, 20th anniversary edition they have uh, a premium version so i don't know if the binding of that one is any better but it's 110 dollars for the premium color <laughs> book which is just ridiculous so i would hope if you spend 110 dollars on a book that it's bound well but i don't know you'd have to read the reviews about that specifically and see if it's any better but i know on the other versions People say as soon as you open it, the binding's falling apart and, and all that. So so yeah, you don't want to spend money on that. But but you can get to PDFs. So that's White Wolf. But then the fifth edition, which again is more recent, is Renegade Game Studios out of San Diego, California. So totally different publisher. Again, I am not a fan of the fifth edition just because of of the rules. I don't care for them. I'd much rather play 20th edition or even second edition or 20th anniversary edition. So yeah, you know, your mileage may vary on that. But uh, yeah, it doesn't look like Mophidius is at all involved anymore, which uh, between me and you is a good thing because uh, they did the the Star Trek Adventures game, which I've played and run and, and reviewed on the show in an earlier episode. And although I really enjoyed that game, I, I think it's not that I've played a lot of Star Trek RPGs, but uh, of the few that I played, it, it was the best one at, at capturing Star Trek in an RPG. So I, I did like the game. I, I would like to run it and play it more. However, the books are, uh, the editing is very subpar, to put it as kindly as I can say. There are just so many editorial oversights in those books. It, it makes it much more difficult to read, to understand, and to play, and to run just because of... Uh, the lack of attention to detail when it came to the editing. So I was a little bit worried to see that they're going to be involved with the World of Darkness stuff, but it doesn't look like they are anymore. It's this uh, this uh, Renegade Game Studios, which which I know nothing about. But uh, again, that's the fifth ed- edition, which I don't recommend. If you get the, the 20th anniversary, that's uh, that's still White Wolf. And, and those of... I don't think they're making any more of those anymore. Um, I think that's all in the past, but, uh, they're still available on drive through. I would just highly recommend you get the PDF and, and not the, uh, hard copies for those. All right. So now that we've, uh, muddied the water a bit with all of that, let's get into the actual system, how the system works. And again, I'm not, I'm not going to get super nitty gritty here, but I just want to kind of explain the basics to you for those of you that have never played this or seen this game. And, as I'm doing so, kind of talk about what I like about it and, and you know, some ways it's different from from other games I've played. And, you know, a lot of that is just kind of the focus and the approach of the game. So to kind of guide us here, I'm just going to use a, a character sheet. I just grabbed a character sheet from uh, Vampire the Masquerade 20th Anniversary Edition um, just to uh, to guide us. So if you want to check out a character sheet, you can kind of follow along. Now... If you get a character sheet for one of the other games, like Changeling or Werewolf or something, or for a different edition, 
uh, than the 20th anniversary edition, as long as it's not the fifth edition, because that one's weird. Um, but if you get any of the other editions, the character sheet is basically the same. The only difference is if you're looking at something other than a vampire, if you're looking at a changeling or a werewolf, when you get to the bottom kind of half of the character sheet, it's uh, some things are going to be different because then you're getting into the supernatural stuff. But when you're talking about just your general attributes and stuff about your character, that's the same with all these games. So if, if you look at the character sheet, in the very top, you've got name, that's the character's name, player's name, Chronicle. So Chronicle is just their word for campaign. So what in D&D or other games would be called the campaign is called the Chronicle. So that's the overall, stary, st- overall story of the thing that, that you're playing or running. Um, so next you have nature, demeanor, and concept. And really, when you make a character in one of these games, the first thing you start with is your concept. And basically, your concept just simply begins with who is this person as a person? And whatever game we're playing, we are talking about who is this person or who was this person before the weird thing happened to them. So before they became a vampire or before they became a mage or a changeling or or whatever kind of supernatural, a werewolf you're going to be playing. All of these games have this idea of you don't realize your supernatural nature until later in life, you know, puberty or early adulthood, something like that. And before that, you're just a normal human. So every character, whether you're a vampire or a mage or whatever you're playing, in these games, your character started out as a normal human, you had a normal childhood, and sometime, usually, you know, in your early adulthood, you changed. And, and you know, if we're talking vampire, you know, some vampire came and ate you and turned you into a vampire. Or if we're talking mage, you awakened and realized you were a mage. Or if you're a changeling, you um, had what was called your chrysalis and, and realized you were a changeling. But before then, you were a normal human being. So the first step in creating these characters for any of these games is your concept, which is basically who were you when you were a normal person. And and it can be anything. It can be any concept of any character that could exist in our world today. So you could have been, you know, a college student. You could have been a high school student. You could have been a single mom. You could have been you know, a father with a wife and children. Um, You know, you could have been an artist or a musician or a writer or a professional athlete or an astronaut or whatever, (laughs) whatever you want. So right there, you know, things are already shifting from what we're used to in a lot of other games where, you know, the first thing we're asking you to think about when you're making a character isn't, you know, what class are you going to be or what race are you going to be? It's like, hey, you're a normal human. You know, who are you? What's your life like? What do you, what do you do? What do you do for a living? What do you do for fun? That kind of thing. And you really flesh that out, ideally, before you even start thinking about the supernatural side of you. Like, you know, um, just, just to keep things simple, I will use vampire as an example. Again, I'll probably do an episode digging more into vampire specifically and and maybe one on mage and one on changeling. But just for today, to not constantly be referencing all these other games, I'll just use vampire as an example. It's the most popular of the games, or at least it was um, back when these games were really popular. 
Um, it's the one that the most people played and have played. So we'll just use that going forward for, for our examples. So before you became a vampire, who, who were you? What, you know, what, uh, were you a student or were you a professional? What was your profession? What did you do? You know, what was your daily life like? That kind of thing. And then you have these two things, nature and demeanor. And, and this is really interesting too. You know, in, in, in the new D&D, we have, you know, your background and you've got these personality traits and all this stuff. And even so, it really doesn't get into like, who are you as a person? Quite the way that, that the nature and demeanor do. So all the games, again, have this nature and demeanor. It doesn't matter what game you're playing. And they're both personality archetypes. So for each of these, you choose a personality archetype. And there, there's all kinds of them in the, in the main book. And then, you know, supplemental books have even more of them. Or you could come up with your own. Um, it's really just a one-word descriptor of, of what is your personality like, what's important to you, that kind of thing. Like, like for instance, uh, my mage character, my personality archetype is benefactor. So my character is all about helping people specifically people who are like marginalized or, you know, people who are poor or, you know, they're not white, they're not male, they're not straight, you know, anyone who, who is discriminated against or, or who is not socially in a position of power, people on the margins, you know, those are the kinds of people that, that my character is really interested in helping, you know, the underdogs, if you will, of the world. And um, so his archetype of benefactor is, is all about that. So you have a nature and you have a demeanor and you choose an archetype characteristic or an archetype descriptor for each of those. So your nature is who you really are. Deep inside, at the core of you, who are you? So my mage character, you know, his nature is a benefactor. That's who he really is. That's what really makes him tick. And then your demeanor is who you want other people to think you are. It's your facade. It's the mask that you wear every day. So right there, you see, right away, we, we haven't even gotten into any of our stats or anything like that. But right away, the, you know, the, second, the first decision about our character is what is your concept? The second decision is what is your nature and what is your demeanor? And right there with that second decision, you already have something to role play. Because your nature is one thing, is one personality archetype, your demeanor is a different one. Now, you could play a character whose nature and demeanor are the same. You're just a very straightforward person. What you see is what you get. But that would be pretty boring, and, and it's kind of recommended you not do that, um, especially in Vampire. Um, no Vampire uh, that's been around for very long is uh, completely what they appear to be. So, yeah, your demeanor is your facade you present to the world, um, so for instance, my mage character, my, my nature is a uh, benefactor. I, I think my demeanor is called hacker or something like that. And, and so, you know, deep down, my character is all about helping people, especially, you know, people who don't have a lot of power in society. But, you know, that's his, his true self. And then kind of what he presents to the world or tries to present to the world is this hacker archetype that's all about um, being a rebel and breaking the rules and, and being kind of anarchic and things like that, but, but is not so much focused on the helping people aspect. 
So that's more of a private thing with him. Now, now being mage, you know, mage doesn't so much focus on the differences between the mage and demeanor like vampire does. Um, you're, you're not as much encouraged to play someone or to play a character whose nature and demeanor are very different, you know, so like mine, they're, they're similar, um, but there's kind of a different, um, focus with each of them. Um, where in vampire, they, they're more often very different because your, your character is more consciously trying to present a false facade. So no one really knows what they're really like. Now, you can definitely have mages who are like that, but in Vampire, it's kind of assumed that every vampire is like that. So that's your nature and demeanor. And, and again, you know, the books will have quite a few different archetypes to choose from. You choose one for your nature and one for your demeanor. Um, and you're encouraged to role play both. So, so again, your nature is who you really are. People who know you really, really well, like your friends, your really good friends and your family will know your nature where people that only know you casually or don't know you at all, they only know you from being on TV or what, or YouTube or whatever, they would only know your demeanor because that's what you show the world. And, and again, you know, those could be more similar or more different based on how much of a straight shooter your character is or, or how much your character uh, dissembles and, and acts like they're something that they're not. And then the next three things, at least at the top of the vampire sheet, are specific to vampire, clan, generation, and sire. And the uh, different games will kind of have equivalents to these. So in vampire, your clan is like your bloodline. So what they did in this, this game that's really interesting is they took all of the various vampire legends out there and they kind of made a list of all of the supernatural abilities that vampires have in different legends. Things from like being able to turn into a bat, being able to turn into mist, being able to fly, um, having super strength, being able to, you know, heal wounds like almost instantly, having like heightened powers of perception, you know, heightened vision and hearing and smell and, uh, you know, being able to hear people's heartbeats, uh, being able to see perfectly in the dark, um, being able to travel through shadows, um, teleport from one shadow to another, being able to move super fast, uh, all these different things. And what they did is they assembled all these different powers that vampires have in different legends, and then they organized them into what are called disciplines, which are collections of similar powers. So, for instance, there's a discipline called Auspects, which is all of the powers of perception that vampires have everything from just having heightened senses, you know, better vision, better smell, better hearing to being able to read people's minds, being able to touch an object and sense things that happened to the object in the past, being able to see auras around people, which can tell you what emotions they're feeling. It can tell you if there's some kind of supernatural being that they are that and what you know, are they a vampire? Are they a mage? Are they a changeling? Seeing someone's aura can tell you that. Stuff like that. So that's aspects is one discipline. The super vampire strength is another discipline called potency. The uh, super vampire speed is another discipline called celerity. Um, all of the various vampire shape-shifting abilities are 
a discipline called protean. So changing to mist, changing to a bat, changing uh, into a swarm of rats. Protean also lets you grow like claws to, to attack people with. Also gives you an ability to be able to see perfectly in the dark. But you kind of see, I think, through those, like how it works, right? You're, you're taking all, all the different abilities vampires have had in different stories and you're grouping them together by theme, you know, by thematic elements. Uh, another one is obfuscate is another discipline that's all their powers of hiding. So, so being able to like walk in a crowd and not be seen, it also involves uh, being able to erase people's memories or change people's memories, things like that. So they took all these powers and, and they grouped them by different disciplines. And then what they did was they came up with various different clans or, or different types or different bloodlines of vampires. And each of these clans have like three of those disciplines. So instead of saying like every vampire can do all these things, like you think about Dracula, right? He had like every vampiric power you could think of. Like he was really powerful. But in this game, you know, that's not the way it works. Like, as a given vampire won't have all of those abilities. They'll only have certain ones. So based on the clan that you choose for your character, you have access to three of those disciplines. But you can actually learn any of them. It just takes more of your resources resources to learn the non-clan disciplines. And, and also, you know, it depends how the GM wants to do it, but usually... Uh, you would have to find a vampire that knows that discipline and drink some of their blood to get access to that to that power. So yeah, so that's that's kind of how their uh, their supernatural abilities work. So that's all tied to your clan, which is kind of what type of vampire do you want to be? So each of the clans, not only do they have three specific disciplines of powers that they have access to, but they also have some kind of social elements to them, like the kinds of people that are chosen to be that kind of vampire. Um, for instance, one of the clans is the Toreador. And the Toreador are all about, they love artists of all kinds. So if a vampire is a Toreador and they're going to make a new vampire, they're going to choose someone who's a musician or a painter or an actor or something like that. Some kind of artist most likely would be a Toreador. A another clan are the Ventru, and they often choose people from, from the business world or from politics. So they're all about political power and economic power. Another clan are the Tremere, and they're kind of like the wizards of the vampire world. They're the occultists, so they'll choose people that are, you know, into the occult or whatever. Uh, another clan are the Gangrel, and, you know, all the other vampires, they live in cities. The Gangrel are the, the one clan that are comfortable out in the wilderness, and they're, you know, they, they will choose people that are more outdoorsy and, and things like that. So people will have different approaches, you know, when they make a vampire character, you know, you might start out with your concept, you know, who was I as a human and then decide, okay, which of these clans does it make sense would choose me? You know, like if, if you, if you, as a human, you were a musician, then it makes sense that the Toreador would choose you. If you were an accountant, it makes sense that the Ventru would choose you, right? Um, so you could go that route. 
Or you could come up with your concept and then say, what kind of vampire do I want to be? And then justify it, you know, because not everyone is going to fall into those stereotypes. So, you know, maybe you're an accountant, <laughs> but you want to be a Toreador. Well, you know, the Toreador need to do their taxes too. So every once in a while, they might make an accountant a vampire and, and you're that guy. Um, that kind of thing. So, you know, you're still free to to make your character however you want and, you know, if you really want to play a vampire, for instance, that can turn into a bat, then you probably want to play a gangrel because they're the ones that, that get that discipline. And then, you know, you'd probably come up with a character concept to fit that. Um, so you don't have to start with the concept. I mean, that's what they tell you to do in the books. But of course, you can do what you want. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot, of, a lot of people would kind of approach it from what do you want your character to be able to do? And, and, you know, think about the disciplines you would want and then look at what clans have access to those disciplines and then what kind of character fits that. But you're still very much thinking about who is your character as a person and not just their stats. Like, you know, you're making a D&D character. Um, a lot of times you're, you know, you're picking your class and your race and your attributes and all this. And you're doing, you know, you've done like 90% of the character before you've even get to the background and started to think about who this character actually is as a person. Um, at least as far as the the system, you know, how it guides you. Where this, you're you're very much thinking about that from the very beginning. All right, so now let's get into more of the nitty-gritty of how the system works. And we can do this by continuing to just go through our character sheet. So next up, we have Attributes. And these are your, your just basic attributes that, that form the baseline for everything else. In D&D terms, this is like your strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, and so on. Or in a lot of other games, have, have very similar thing. So one thing that's really cool about how these games work is the attributes are split into three types. Three types of attributes, and then there are three attributes within each type. So the three types are physical social, and mental. And it's very self-explanatory, right? I don't even have to tell you what those three things mean. So the three physical attributes are strength, dexterity, and stamina. Pretty self-explanatory. Strength is how strong you are. Dexterity is how agile and dexterous you are. Strength and dexterity map exactly to the same attributes in D&D. Uh, stamina is constitution in D&D. Uh, it's how hardy you are, you know, how long can you run, how long can you lift before you get tired. I mean, vampires don't get diseases, but if you're not a vampire, how resistant are you to disease, poison, things like that. Then within social, your social attributes are charisma, manipulation, and appearance. Again, those are all pretty self-explanatory. Charisma is the same as in D&D. It's, it's, uh, you know, how charismatic are you? How how good are you at interacting with other people and, and having them like you and getting along with people? Uh, manipulation is your ability to manipulate people. Uh, and not necessarily, you know, in a negative, evil way, um, but just any time that you're wanting to get a specific or certain reaction from someone or control their reaction in any way, you're using manipulation instead of charisma. And then appearance is just simply how good looking are you? It's not necessarily completely just the physical, you know, how attractive you are, how you dress would be part of that, just kind of how you present yourself, your your confidence, things like that. But but 
just, you know, appearance? How, how do people react to you just on a what you look like kind of level? And then your mental attributes are perception, intelligence, and wits. Again, these are pretty self-explanatory. Perception is same as the skill in D&D. Uh, how sharp are your senses? How good are you at noticing things? Intelligence is the same as D&D. How smart are you? And then your wits is sort of kind of like your wisdom in D&D. But what wits really is, is your ability to think on your feet. Uh, your ability to think fast and under pressure. So intelligence is more like just how smart are you? Um, how much do you know? Remembering things, knowing things, you know, how well read are you? Things like that. Where wits is more like street smarts and more like when you don't have time to think about something, how good are you at doing the smart thing when you don't have any time to think about it? That's That's wits. And those are your attributes. There are nine of them, three physical, three social, three mental. And all of your, um, in general, all of your traits go from one to five. And five is the human maximum. So if you're talking strength, a five strength is, you, you know, you are the strongest human or you're among the strongest humans. You're as strong as a human can be. Same thing like intelligence. A five intelligence, you're, you know, one of the smartest people. Two, if I remember right, two is average. So one is low, two is average, five is the maximum, and then three and four in between average and and maximum. All right, so those are your attributes. So then instead of what in some, like a game like D&D, you have your skills, right? Well, in this game, you have abilities. And just like the attributes, attributes, we had three main categories, physical, social, mental, we have three main categories of abilities too, and those are talents, skills, and knowledges. So talents are ex- exactly what the word says. They are talents. They are inborn abilities, things that you're just good at. Of course, you can get better with these things uh, through practice and spending experience. But there, there are things that are, are just kind of more innate abilities, although most or all of these uh, you can also learn or be taught. Skills are more things that you have to learn. And then knowledges are things that you know. So for instance, under talents, you have things like alertness, athletics, uh, brawl, which is fighting fighting with your hands and feet, uh, intimidation, leadership, stuff like that. Skills, you have things like crafts, drive, you know, driving a car, etiquette, firearms, uh, performance, stealth, survival, things like that. And the knowledges are are all areas of of knowledge, things you can know about, like academics, computers, finance, the occult, politics, science, technology, etc. So there you go. You got your attributes and you got your abilities. And all of those, you know, go from one to five. And now we have enough to explain kind of the core mechanic of this game. So for most of the things that you roll when you need to make a roll in the game, you are going to combine an attribute and an ability to do that. And you're just going to add the ratings for the attribute and the ability, each of which can go one to five. And then that total number is going to be the number of 10-sided dice that you roll. This game only uses D10s. You don't use any other dice for the game. So it's just easiest to do examples. So let's say you wanted to swing a sword at someone. 
So your attribute for that would be dexterity, and your ability would be melee, is a skill called melee that you use for using all melee weapons. So you would just add those together. So, oh, and I should note that attributes, you begin with one in all the attributes, because you can't have a zero attribute. But your abilities, your talent, skills, and knowledges, you don't get any for free, and you can't have a zero in those. So like, for instance, firearms, you can have a zero in firearms because you never learn to fire a gun. So let's say to swing a sword, you have a strength of three out of uh, possible five, and you have a melee of two. So three plus two is five. So you would have five dice to roll to swing your sword. And then when you make a roll, you just have a difficulty, which is your target number on each die that you roll. If the GM doesn't tell you otherwise, the standard difficulty is six. So you would roll your five 10-sided dice, and for every one of those that had a six or higher, that's one success. If you get one success, it means you you did the, the minimum of what you were trying to do, and then more than one success, you know, you succeed better and better the more successes you get. If you get no successes, you fail, and then uh, you can also botch in this game. So anytime one of the die that or one of the dice that you roll has a one on it, it cancels one of your successes out. If you ever make a roll and you don't roll any successes at all, which is to say you don't roll any dice that hit that target number or higher, and you also roll ones, then you botch. Um, Otherwise, if you just roll enough ones that cancel out all your successes that you rolled, then you just don't succeed, but it's not a botch. And that is something that they changed... And, and kind of one of the issues with the system back in the second edition days when I played was that any time you rolled more ones than successes to where your total number of successes was a negative number, uh, you botched. And you just botched a lot. And, and it seemed like, you know, as you can see with these games, as you get more powerful, as your character gets more powerful, you have more dice in your dice pool to roll but it actually, when anytime you roll more ones than successes, it's a botch. It actually means that the more dice you have, the more likely you are to botch, or at least that's the way it seemed. So, you know, you might be crazy powerful at something and have 10 dice to roll, but you would botch a lot because that's, you know, 10 chances to roll ones. Um, so this this new way that they do it where you can only botch when you don't roll any successes at all, and then you roll some ones, um, makes it less likely. And yeah, it, it's definitely better now because we play this way in, in Craig's Mage games. And yeah, one every once in a while, someone botches, but it doesn't happen all the time uh, like it used to when when they did it the other way. So yeah, you know, the, the 20th anniversary edition, which is what we're playing now, I've seen a few very minor changes to the system since second edition, which is what I used to play. That's one of them. Um, they're all pretty minor, and the ones I've seen so far, they they all I, I like the new way better. So they're all improvements. All right, so let's do another example. Uh, let's say you want to shoot a gun. That would also be dexterity plus firearms. So let's say you have a dexterity three and a firearms of three, you would have six dice to roll. And it, it's just that sim- simple. And it's cool because there's some flexibility here. Actually, there's a lot of flexibility here because for most roles, you just need an attribute and an ability. 
and and there are kind of standard ones. Like for instance, shooting a gun is usually dexterity plus firearms, but the GM can do do or what's called the storyteller in these games can do whatever they want, whatever makes sense. Um, so you can use different combinations. So for instance, if if you had a situation where a character is like using a sniper rifle and they're hidden somewhere from a at a vantage point and they're really dialing in a shot and they're taking their time to do that, you could have them roll perception plus firearms instead of dexterity plus firearms because that makes more sense to you. And you can do that with any roll. So it, it's really flexible in that way. And, and you can really come up with, with ways to, to represent what's happening in the story in very specific ways. So an, another example, let's see. Let's say you wanted to lie to someone right? And, and get away with it. So your attribute for that would be manipulation and your ability would be a talent called subterfuge. So, you know, let's say you have a four in manipulation and a three in subterfuge, you would roll seven dice, four plus three uh, for that roll. And that's very simply how uh, the basic system works. And that again is the same for all of the games. All the games have the same attributes and the same abilities. I mean, some of them will have some some abilities that some of the games don't, but they all have the the core ones, and they all work the same way. So now, if if you're looking at a character sheet from this point on, is where some things will be different depending on which game you're playing. This is where they they start to diverge. You get a bit. Again, they're all compatible, but they they're not all exactly the same. So one thing that is the same is in all of them is willpower. So you have a stat called willpower, and it goes from 1 to 10. And in most of the games, you start out either with 5 or round 5 starting out. And willpower is really cool because you have your, your permanent rating, that's whatever it is, and then you have willpower points that you can spend. So let's say you have five willpower. That means you have five willpower points you can spend. And whenever you spend a willpower point, you get one automatic success on whatever you're rolling in addition to whatever you roll. It also means that you can't possibly botch because remember, as long as you roll at least one success on any roll, you can't botch. So you could spend a point of willpower if you're doing something really important and you have one success already before you even roll. And then whatever you roll adds to that. And then you can get willpower back in, in various ways. Like if, if you sleep, you get a good night's sleep, you get a willpower point back. Another way that you get your willpower back is by role-playing your nature. So every personality archetype will tell you something you can do to get willpower back. For instance, I, I mentioned my mage character, my nature is benefactor. So anytime my character helps someone out of a bad situation, especially if it's kind of a desperate situation, I can get willpower back and I can get, I think, two to three points back for that. Um, so, so you get willpower back by role-playing your character, role-playing your nature, which is, which is pretty cool. And then the, uh, the health track is the same in all the games. So unlike a game like D&D where you have hit points, in this game, you have a health track, and, and it's a lot more uh, realistic than hit points. So, you know, if you're one of those people that was always bothered by hit points because, you know, let's say you have 100 hit points, 
you know, you could have one hit point left and you fight just as well as if you had all 100 and then you lose that one hit point and now boom, you're dead, right? It's not very realistic. Well, this is a lot more realistic in that you have health levels. So you start out, you're healthy. And then when you take damage, you go through these different health levels. Um, So there's bruised, hurt, injured, wounded, mauled, crippled, and then incapacitated. And then if you're incapacitated and you take more damage, you're dead. And then each of these health levels have different penalties associated with them. They're pretty simple. Uh, You get a dice penalty. So at bruised, there's no penalty. But at hurt, you get a minus one penalty. And that means every time you roll for anything, you get one less die in your dice pool than you would normally get. And then injured is minus one. And then wounded, that penalty goes to minus two. Mauled is also minus two. And then it crippled, it goes to minus five. Also with these, uh, once you get to hurt, I believe your movement ability goes down. So you can move less uh, per turn uh, as you're hampered. By the time you're mauled, uh, I think you can basically crawl. <laughs> and that's about it. And then, yeah, once you're incapacitated, you're, you're unconscious and can't move at all. So yeah, that's, uh, that's how it works. Um, and that's basically the sim- system. Uh, the only other thing is you do often have opposed roles. Uh, so for instance, in combat, if uh, the GM, uh, an NPC, is, is attacking you and they roll to hit you, you get to roll to avoid getting hit. Um, so for instance, let's say you're dodging, you might roll dexterity plus athletics. And so you just compare your successes to the successes the person attacking you gets, and each of yours can- cancels out one of them. So if you roll as many successes as they roll or more, then you dodged and avoided the attack. And then even if you get hit, you can roll to soak. So they roll their damage and you roll your stamina. And every uh, success you get on your stamina roll uh, decreases the damage you take by one. But but keep in mind, you know, it's a, it's a lot more than taking one damage in D&D where, where even, you know, a first level character you might have close to 10 hit points or more. So taking one damage isn't that big of a deal. But here you only have, what is it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven health levels. So you take eight damage, you're dead. So yeah, one damage is a lot more in these games than it it is in something like D&D or or Pathfinder or something like that. But uh, yeah, that's, that's basically the gist of the system. That's why I was confident that we could cover this today because there's not a lot to it. Oh, there's one other thing that every uh, character has in all the games, and that's your backgrounds. So you get five points to choose backgrounds with, and like other things, backgrounds go in ratings of one to five. And you can get all kinds of things with backgrounds, things like uh, like your mentor. You know, most characters are going to have a mentor of some kind, but if you put points in a mentor background, it means that they're someone important that can be of significant help to you. Uh, you can have backgrounds that are allies, people that will help you out, like normal human people. You can have backgrounds that are contacts, that are you know, someone that you can turn to for information. So maybe you have a contact in the police department or in the government or something like that. And then there are, there are specific backgrounds for the different um, games. For instance, Vampire, you have a background called Generation, 
which uh, I can get more into that when we talk more about vampire, but it's basically how how innately powerful is your vampire. So if you want to have a more powerful character, you, you can put points into generation and, and you'll be more powerful starting out. Other things is it, you might have some kind of lair or something that could be a background. Um, you might be famous, all, all kinds of different things. So yeah, that's uh, that's all the stuff without getting specific to a particular game. And uh, so, so the way that character creation works is it's not like like old school D and D where you're rolling randomly for things. It, it's very much a point based point by kind of thing. So everybody is equal. Um, every PC is equal in that they get the same amount of points to spend for things. Um, it's all what you want to get. So the way it works is you have these different areas on your character sheet. And in each area, you get a certain number of points to spend. And then once you spend all those, at the very end, you get 15 freebie points that you can use to get anything you want. But different things cost different amounts of freebie points. So to kind of make that make more sense, hopefully, I'll walk you through it real quick how this works. So let's say we're going to make a vampire character. We start with our attributes. So remember I said there are three types of attributes, physical, social, mental. So the first thing you do is you choose primary, secondary, tertiary, which is simply with my attributes, physical, social, mental, which am I best at? Am I best at the physical stuff, the social, or the mental? Okay, so that's your primary. So let's say uh, my character, my best thing is mental. I'm a really smart guy. So my primary attributes are mental. And then you pick secondary, which are you next best at? So let's say I pick social. And then tertiary, which are you the least good at? And let's say I pick physical, but you can do whatever you want. So the primary, you get seven points to spend. The secondary, you get five points. And the tertiary, you get three for your attributes. And remember, they all start at one. And then there's three of each type of attribute. So your primary attribute, let's say you do mental as primary, you have seven points to spend among perception, intelligence, and wits. And then your secondary, you get five points. Your tertiary, you get three points. Now, when we go to the abilities, it works the exact same way. So remember, I said there are three types of abilities, talent, skills, and knowledges. Again, you choose which of these is your primary your secondary, and your tertiary. For your primary, you get 13 points. For your secondary, you get nine. And for your tertiary, you get five. For your backgrounds, you just get five points to spread among your backgrounds however you want. So you can get five different ones at one dot, or you could get a couple at two dots and get one at one, or get one at five, or, or whatever you want. Now, with your your attributes and your backgrounds, you can put points however you want, wherever you want. The abilities have a limitation in that at this point in character creation, when you're spending your ability points, you can't raise any of them above three. So it just kind of forces you to not hyper-focus and, and to have enough different things that, that you're a well-rounded character. So you can only put points to, to raise it up to three at this point. Now, later when you get your freebie points, you can raise them higher. And then for vampires specifically, you have disciplines. You, you get three points to spend for those, and they have to be from your, from your clan disciplines. 
And then a lot of the games like Mage, for instance, for your willpower, you just start out with five. Vampire is a, a little different, but but we won't go into that until we talk about vampire specifically. So uh, then you've spent those points and, and you've got kind of starting dots and those things. And then you go to your freebie points. Everybody gets 15 freebie points to, to put dots wherever you want. Oh, I keep saying dots because the way these character sheets work, um, like I said, everything goes from one to five for the most part, except for willpower goes to 10. And the way they show this on the character sheet, instead of putting a number like strength one, you know, dexterity two, um, they have dots. So everything has five dots in a row after it. And you fill in the number of dots you have because everything goes from one to five, except for willpower, which goes to 10. So willpower has 10 dots that you can fill in. So that's why I keep talking about dots. So um, when you get to your freebie points, you have 15 points to spend. And then the different things you might want to get cost a different number of those points. So for instance, your attributes cost five points per dot. And it doesn't matter which, you know, the first dot or the third dot, they all cost the same. They cost five points. Abilities cost two points. Disciplines cost five points for clan disciplines and seven points for non-clan disciplines. So you see there, that's the point where you could choose, like when you get your three discipline points to spend, those have to be clan disciplines. But when you get the freebie points, you could get a non-clan discipline if you wanted, but it's going to cost you seven instead of five of those points. And you only get 15 points. So at most, you could only get one or two dots in non-clan disciplines. Because if you got two, that would cost 14 of your 15 points. So you're, you might have one or two, but you're not going to have much in non-clan stuff. Uh, your backgrounds cost one point per dot. Your virtue, well, we didn't get into that. Um, willpower costs one point per dot. So we're not going to go into virtues or humanity because that's specific to vampire. But uh, yeah, that's that's basically how it works. So, so again, you know, for each of these sections of your character sheet, you first get a certain number of points to spend for that thing, for like, for instance, attributes and abilities and backgrounds and whatnot. And then at the very end, you get freebie points that you can spend to raise any of those things, but they all cost different numbers of freebie points. And then going forward, as you get XP, you, you don't have levels. Instead, you just raise specific things. So you can raise your attributes. You can raise basically anything on the character sheet with XP. Uh, the one exception is backgrounds. Um, you can raise those with XP, but they're more often raised just through role-playing because those are just things that kind of happen through playing your character. You don't really have to buy them with XP, although you can. And then the, the XP costs differ uh, and I'm not going to go into that specifically, but just know, for instance, it costs more to raise an attribute than it does to raise an ability. Uh, it costs more, for instance, vampires, their disciplines are the most expensive things to raise because those are their supernatural powers. And it, it makes sense that those would be expensive to raise, right? But but yeah, that's the gist of the system and how it works. All right, so so now that we've covered just kind of the basics of of how the system works and kind of how how a character is made up and, and what a character kind of what the parts of a character are. What is it like to run this game? Well, it's really easy. Um, and it's a lot of fun and it's just really straightforward. It's so straightforward and easy. It's a lot of fun to run. There, there's very, very little 
of looking stuff up. You, you know, really, like for instance, vampire, about the only time you have to look anything up is, you know, some of the disciplines, that, depending what the, the character is doing with the discipline, there might be some kind of role involved. And, you know, unlike most of the roles in the game, it may not, you know, you may not be able to just figure out what you roll. So you might have to look that up like, oh, I, someone wants to use Aura site, you know, what's the role for that to to do that? But usually you, you know, you only have to look those up once because I would just always ask my players, I'd be like, hey, if, you know, if you have a discipline that involves a role, just write that down somewhere in your character sheet. Like Aura site, I roll this plus, you know, perception plus, a cult or I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, you know, just write that down. And then we never have to flip through the book and find it. You just know, you know, you can look on your sheet when you use Orisite and you can tell me what the role is, or you can just roll it. And then the only other thing is like looking up the stats for like a specific weapon or, or something like that. Like, you know, they, they, they get into some nitty gritty, like, you know, they don't just have one stat for, all pistols, you know, a, a 45 has different stats than a 44 or a nine millimeter. Um, but, but again, that's the kind of thing that if you're talking about a player character, they look it up once, they write it down and then they have it forever. So it's really simple. And, and most of your roles, like I said, you're just going to be taking an attribute plus an ability. And it's just so logical and straightforward. Like you don't have to look it up. You can just look and it's obvious what the answer is. You know, if you, even if you didn't know, and I was like, what do I roll to, I don't know, be able to spot something like, you know, like the perception check in D&D, what would I roll for that? Well, I look and I'm like, well, okay, first is that for the attribute, is it going to be physical, social, or rental? Well, that's going to be a mental thing, obviously. So I look at mental and, oh, we have one of our mental attributes is perception. So obviously we're going to use perception and then we need to use an ability with that. Um, you know, would that be a talent, a skill or a knowledge? Well, I'm guessing that's a talent kind of thing to be perceptive. So we look and let's see, we've got alertness. I mean, we've got some different things. Probably would use alertness most of the time. But again, there's there's flexibility in in the system. For instance, I see there's a talent called Streetwise, which is you know knowing street smarts kind of stuff. So I could definitely see in a city situations where I'd be asking people to roll perception plus Streetwise if that would be more relevant to what they're trying to perceive than than alertness. But a lot of times they're going to be rolling perception plus alertness. You know, if if someone's driving a car, you know, obviously I'm not going to have you roll just to drive a car, nor uh, assuming you know how to drive a car. But if you're in like a chase, then then you might have to roll. So that would probably be dexterity for the attribute plus drive for the ability. There's actually a, a skill for that, dexterity plus drive. Um, my character in Mage is a hacker a lot. So I'm often rolling intelligence plus computer for that. So, you know, as a GM for this, usually what I would do it for an, a GM aid is I would just have a, a copy of the character sheet there in front of me, just a blank character sheet. And whenever I need to make have someone make a role, if I don't immediately know what it is, I just look at the character sheet and I pick the attribute that fits best and I pick the ability that fits that 
best. They're all right there in the sheet in black and white. And boom, it's that easy. Um, you don't need a GM screen for these games. Now, maybe for Mage you do, but for the other ones, you you don't you don't need that. It's so easy. And uh, there's even a way to do things without dice if you want. So if for some reason you don't want to use dice, like sometimes I would run this while we were camping and we wouldn't want it. We'd be around the campfire at night and not want to deal with dice. So uh, a way you can go about it is as long as their dice pool is the number of dice is equal to or greater than the difficulty, then they can just succeed automatically. And you can just get rid of dice altogether that way if you want. It's also really easy to dial in the difficulty that you want for any given role. Um, the default difficulty is just assumed to be six, but you can go higher or lower than that. And that is the target on the dice that you need for a success. So, so let's say the player is rolling five dice. They're only rolling 10-sided dice, 5d10. Standard, they need a six on each of those dice to be a success. So every of those five 10-sided they roll, every one that's a six or higher is a success. Every one that's a five or lower is not a success. And then if they roll any ones, those cancel out successes. And then they total up how many successes they get. So, uh, you know, that's a standard roll. Standard roll is difficulty six, and you need one success to succeed. But you can adjust the difficulty. If you think it's easier than standard, you could make the difficulty five or four or three or even two. It'd be really easy. Or if it's harder, you can make the difficulty, you know, seven or eight or nine. Um, usually don't want to make things difficulty 10, but uh, you, you could if you wanted to. You can also require more successes. So you could say, well, this is a difficulty six roll, but to actually do what you're trying to do, you need two successes, not just one. Um, so you have two different ways there. You can kind of adjust the difficulty the way that you want. And and usually the way I approached it was was I normally just mess with the actual difficulty number and I would only increase the number of successes you needed if they were doing something complex that might, you know, you might think of needing more than one action to do kind of thing. Then instead of having a make multiple rolls, I would just say, "Oh, you need two successes to do that" or or something like that. But it, it's just really easy to just make rulings on the fly and just go with it. There's there's very little of having to look things up in this game. And, and once you and the players have been do- doing it for a while, again, Mage is an exception to this. I'm not really talking about Mage. But once you and the players have been playing for a while, you almost never have to look something up unless something comes up that you've just never had to deal with before mechanically. And even then, I mean... It's not a super crunchy game. There's not a ton of rules in the book. So when you do need to look something up, it's usually pretty quick. You know right where to look in the book to find it um, because it's not packed with tons of rules. And uh, it's a pretty quick thing to look up something if or when you need to. But it's very rare that you need to look anything up. So yeah, I really like it because it's not a game where you need to memorize a bunch of rules. Like D&D Pathfinder are very much games where you have to memorize a bunch of rules if you don't want to be looking stuff up all the time or having to to come up with stuff, systems all the time. And or you need an extensive GM screen with lots of tables and references on it. Um, this, you, you don't need that. 
And uh, I really like games like that where it has a fairly simple core system that is very flexible that can apply to a bunch of different things. So it's not like you're just rolling the same thing all the time and every roll seems the same, but you still don't need to be looking stuff up all the time. And and this system really hits that sweet spot. Like for instance, Numenera is, is another game where you don't need to look stuff up so much, but that game starts to feel like all the rolls kind of start to feel the same after a while because you're always rolling 1d20 and it, it's also a very simple system but all the rolls feel the same it just feels like you might as well just flip a coin sometimes because um, all the rolls are so similar where this game you know you are having different dice pools with the different rolls so there is more of a feeling of variety where it doesn't feel like every roll is is just the same thing um, which I appreciate, but still has that that simplicity where you can kind of grok the the core mechanic and and now you hardly ever have to look anything up. You can just figure everything out on the fly. Um, you just need that character sheet there so that you have easy access to all the abilities and all the attributes so you don't have to try to remember them. But uh, once you run this very much, you don't even need the character sheet because you remember what all those things are. So that is it. That is our discussion of the basics of the Storyteller system. Again, Storyteller system is is the name of of the basic system that is used in in all these different games, Vampire, Werewolf, Mage, Changeling, Wraith, and others. So yeah, that's it. And, And like I said, I think I may do a deeper dive into some of the specific games. Um, I could definitely do Vampire and Changeling. And uh, maybe maybe do mage with uh, with Craig's help. He's probably a bit more uh, well read in mage than I am at this point, since he's running it. And uh, yeah, let me know if you'd be interested in those and which one specifically you're interested in. Might help me decide uh, which one to do first. Um, although I will probably do vampire first because of the two I know, it's the simplest to explain. Changeling has some conceptual things that are kind of out there and like all of you I'm pretty confident know what a vampire is and we're probably all on the same page of what a vampire is but but changelings are a little more I, I mean it's not like everybody knows what a vampire is right it, changeling is not a common supernatural that that everybody has the same idea of what that is um, and it's also um, conceptually more complex than vampire especially when we don't all start from the same point. So so it'll take a bit just to explain what a changeling is and how all that works. But vampire, I, I know very well, and it, it's very, you know, we all already know what a vampire is. Um, so of all the games, it's the easiest one to explain. So that's probably what I'll start with. But let me know which of those you're interested and hearing about. You can email me at gamemastersjourney at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Lex Starwalker, and you can call my voicemail 951-GMJ-LEX1. That's 951-465-5391. And finally, join us on Discord. You can find the link to my Discord server in the show notes at lexstarwalker.com slash GMJ. I hope that you have a chance to play your favorite RPG this week. I hope you have a chance to run your favorite RPG. I'll be back soon with another episode of Game Master's Journey. 
Until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey.